Good morning, everyone. I'm glad that you're here with us, even though we can't see you from this end. We know that many of you are uh, with us today, and we're thankful for that. I'm excited to share with you from Romans chapter 6, verse 14. I'm going to be talking about living in a new dimension. And there's, uh, this is a great passage that I spent a lot of time reflecting on, and I'm excited about sharing what I've discovered. Uh, before I do that, I want to show you a picture. Uh, uh, Robert has all these paintings behind him. And I brought my own, see if you can see that, I'll bring that up close to the screen there. If you can see the similarity between, <laughs> between me and the picture, my grandson and son-in-law, they spent uh, Sunday listening to uh, the sermon and drew me, and I think that's a pretty good likeness of, uh, of capture me pretty well. It says, I love you big dog, that's me. Didi and Tui. So Didi, my son-in-law, and Tui had that for me. And maybe I should post that back here for next week. We'll see about that. But anyway, we're thankful that you're all participating in one way or another. And we're thankful that you're with us today. In 1884, the book Flatland was written. I first read a portion of it in uh, college uh, it was is old English. It's difficult to read in some ways, but a movie's been made of it, and I, I believe in 2007. If you wanted to see that, but in this uh, in this story, a world is imagined of uh, a two dimensional world is imagined. There are squares, triangles, circles, and there's many things going on in the story. But one key area is the two-dimensional creatures could not imagine a third dimension. It's narrated by a square. His brother is B-square. But he comes in contact with a sphere during this time, comes into his dimension, and tries to explain to this two-dimensional creature what three-dimension looks like. And he has a very difficult time explaining that until he brings them in. And it's, it's kind of like this. You have this paper here. It's two dimensions. And imagine things on the paper. Uh, the three-dimensional sphere came into the world. And as he came into the world, all the two-dimensional creature could see was a circle, not a sphere. And as it dropped down, it would grow larger. The circle would grow larger. And as he continued in uh, through the, the dimension, the, it would get smaller. And I'm giving you that illustration is because we live in a physical dimension. Everything that we know is based on material things, um, the things around us. That, that's our, our senses uh, uh, see and touch and taste and smell. Uh, we feel uh, things based on these physical things that are going on around us. And it's... It's solid and it's real, and we feel this is permanent. Uh, we think of it as uh, lasting uh, at least a very long time. It's our reality, we could say. But then God enters our dimension, and he introduces a new dimension, a spiritual dimension, that I think the more I thought of this, 
the more I realize we have a very difficult time understanding this spiritual dimension. We get an idea of it, and, and certain things in our world gives us ideas of it, but we continue to operate, we have a tendency to continue to operate and to think in our worldly dimension. And it's difficult for us to move into the heavenly way of thinking and into the action that we should be, that, we sh- that should go on in our lives based not on our, our physical dimension, but this spiritual dimension. Romans 6, 14 tells us that we have moved into a new dimension, a new way of thinking and a new way of living that is so foreign to us that many find it very difficult to understand, to believe, uh, to uh, even conceive. This dimension is the dimension of grace. Learning of God's grace and learning to live in it effectively is much like the two-dimensional creatures of flatland, learning how to understand and how to think and to become three-dimensional. Romans 6, verse 14 says this, For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. And as I looked at that verse, I, I, I thought this could be a key verse, maybe the key verse in Romans. I know everything leading that he has written about up to this point leads to this key concept. And I haven't had time to study Romans in a great enough, uh, enough death depth for me to, uh, to, to make a firm statement that it is the key verse. I know verse one, chapter 1, verse 17 is the theme, but it's very much related to this verse, that the theme of Romans stated in, in verse 17, says, For in the gospel, in the good news, is a righteousness from God. A righteousness from God is revealed. And this is a right relationship with God is revealed. And then he says this righteousness, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, the NIV says, literally from faith to faith. In other words, it begins with faith and it ends with faith. And all between is faith. We're putting, the, we're putting these things into action. So this gospel, this good news of a right relationship that comes from God, he says, is based in faith from the beginning through the end. And then we come to this verse, and it's almost, at least it's a crescendo, when it brings us to this point where he says that sin will not be master over us. For we are not under law, but under grace. This place of reality, this new dimension that we're going into, is described in many different ways. It's described as being in Christ. That's our new dimension. It's in Christ. And the former dimension was, uh, was in sin. That's where we were. And in chapter 6, verse 2, he says... We died to sin. How can we live in it any, any longer? We were in this dimension called sin, 
and we died to it, so how can we remain in that? How can we stay in that dimension? And so we left the sphere of sin, or the dimension of sin, and we entered into this new dimension that he calls here, into Christ. We came into Christ. And how we got there, he tells us in verse 3. Don't you know, or don't you realize that all of us who were baptized into Christ, this is how we entered into Christ, were baptized into his death. So this transference from one dimension to the next is something that happened to us not under our own power, but under the power of God. A lot of people struggle with baptism, thinking of it as a work, something that we do, that we earn our way into uh, salvation or earn our way into Christ. And it's not that at all. Paul never describes it that way. It's just a vehicle in which we are transferred from one dimension to the next. And an illustration would be something like this, where we have a... Uh, uh, we, we, I, I used to uh, many times have gone over to the Fiji Islands. I worked there for a long time. Well, I get on a plane in uh, L.A., and I'm transferred from Los Angeles to Nandi, Fiji, uh, by sitting on that plane. Nothing of my own effort brings that plane up to 30,000 feet or above and travels through the air 550 miles an hour or so. And in the same way as I'm sitting, just sitting in my, in, on that plane, being transferred to another location, God does the work in my life too. What I did was an act of faith. When I walked on that plane in Los Angeles, I sat in that monstrous tube, metal tube, in faith, believing that this would actually transport me to the Pacific Ocean or across the Pacific Ocean. And baptism is nothing more than that vehicle of transportation. We submit ourselves to a dunking in water, and in faith, in the power of God, not my own power, that he is, at that point, moving me from one sphere, one dimension, to another dimension. The dimension of sin to the dimension of Christ. And in Christ, he says, we are dead to sin. Now, this is a fact. This is something that God did to us. This is real. This is a reality. And you say, well, you know, I don't feel dead to sin. Well, so what? I actually don't feel like I'm 30,000 feet in the air when I'm in an airplane. And I don't feel like I'm traveling at 550 miles an hour when I'm up there. But it's still a fact. That's actually happening to me. In the same way, when God does something to you, it doesn't matter whether you feel like it's happening to you, to you or not. He says, this is what I'm doing at this time. And so this dimension that we live in called in Christ, or in verse 14, it's, he uses a different phrase. He says, under grace. It's the same dimension. We're in the grace dimension, or in Christ. And so we're under grace. Now, what do we do? What do we do when we're in Christ? And we looked at this previously, when we're living in this new dimension, there are some things that we do. And we listed four of them. Last week, I, I listed them do, don't, don't do. And the first one is we think differently. Verse 11, 
says, uh, in the same way, count yourselves dead. And so, uh, dead to, uh, let me read here, um, dead to sin, but alive in God, in Christ Jesus. So you count yourself this way. You think differently. And the only way to think differently is to recognize where you are, to recognize who you, who you are. If I don't recognize that I'm in Christ, if I don't know that I'm in Christ, then it's going to be very difficult for me to think differently, to count myself, to think myself dead to sin and alive to God. If we don't recognize that we're in Christ, if we don't know it, we're not going to act on it. And the second thing he says in this new dimension, he says, don't enthrone your passions. Don't put your passions, your feelings on a throne. In verse 12, he says that, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its passionate desires, its evil desires. You don't obey the feelings that you, that you feel. So he says, that's a, a, the second thing we do. We don't do that. And third, he says, but rather use your personality to do what is right and what honors God. The first part of verse 13, do not offer the parts of your body to sin. Your mouth, your eyes, your hands, your, your, what you hear, you know, don't offer these things, uh, these parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. Don't do that. Don't use your personality to get what you want. But rather, he says, do what is right. Use your personality to do what is right and what honors God, but offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. This is another way of saying we operate under grace, not under law. And this is very, very difficult. Uh, the more I've thought about this and experienced in my, in my own life, the more I realize this is not easy. This is like a flatlander learning what three dimensions is like. We live in a world where that everything we talked about calls to us. We are people of passion. We are people of feelings. And that's the call of the world for us to follow that. And it's so natural to do that. So to change our way of thinking is very difficult to operate in, in, in the sphere of grace. A lot of times we equate this living in Christ as just learning to be nice, learn to be sweet. And there's nothing wrong with being nice, and there's nothing wrong with being sweet. Those two things are... Some people are naturally nicer than others. It's a natural thing. And it's good to be those things. But God doesn't call us to be nice or sweet. He calls us to be like Christ. And there were many times that Jesus wasn't nice. And he wasn't sweet. And you just read through the Gospels and keep that in your mind. I don't have to go to any, any illustrations there. But we are called in this new dimension to learn how to live in this dimension that, we've, that we're not familiar with at all. And it says, in Christ under grace. Let's break down the verse here. He says, for sin shall not be your master. He begins that way. For sin shall not be your master. 
There are two words for in this sentence. This is the first one, for. And it's a little word that we skip over, but it's connecting. This is a connection word that's connecting to the previous thought. There's, you have to know what he said before to understand why he's using this word for. And we looked at those, those do, don't, don't, and do. The reason we do certain things and the reason we don't do certain things is for this reason. For sin is not our master. That's why we do those things and don't do those things. And they're not external rules. These are not rules that we impose on ourselves and, and to, to, to be in Christ. These are relational actions or activities that take place when we realize and we learn to live in Christ. It's based on the new me, the new life I'm living that he spoke about earlier. These are not four laws in which I will become you when I obey these four laws, but it is four things we do because we have a new life. And maybe an illustration would be something like this. We, and I've used this many times before, is that when, when you come into a marriage relationship, when you get married, you, are, you enter into a relationship, and very few people say, okay, what's the rules to be a good husband? What's the rules to be a good wife? But we read books and we get advice and we look at things to learn how to be a good husband, to learn how to be a good wife. And it's based on our relationship and we learn what the other person needs and wants and pleases the other person. And then we work on that, not because there's a bunch of rules that I have 10 rules that, that this will make my wife uh, pleased if I obey these 10 rules. But I am trying to find out what do I do? What do I not do that will enhance this relationship? And that's what these, these things are. He says, sin shall not be your master, or, or some translations say, sin shall not have dominion over you. And that word, master, is the word that we use many times in the Bible, Lord. Sin shall not be your Lord. And why not? Why isn't sin your Lord? Well, because Christ is your Lord. You can only have one Lord. You can only have one master. And you've made the decision that Christ is your Lord. So, Sin can't be your Lord. It's, it's that simple. Uh, it's a fact. It's a promise, all tied up into one. He says, we, you, for sin shall not be your master. And yes, it's in the future sense, uh, tense, but he's not saying, this is something that's going to happen way in the future. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that in the, in the context, he is saying here that it won't have dominion over you ever. Because it doesn't have dominion over you now. Not now, not ever. Uh, this is not a future, uh, something that's going to happen when we, when we go to heaven. But this is a current thing. For sin will never be my master. Not now, not, not in the future. And this is the reality of the Christian life. This is my reality. Christ is my Lord. Sin is not my Lord. And so when you ask a Christian, who's your Lord? He immediately will say, Jesus or Christ is my Lord. And this is what he's saying. Sin is not your Lord. And because, you're, because you have entered into Christ and you're in this new dimension, sin is no longer your Lord. This is God's promise to you. He's, he's transferred you to this new dimension. And the promise here is sin is not your Lord. 
This is in the singular, not sins are not my Lord. And he's not referring here to the different sins I struggle with. And this is important because so many Christians struggle with this. Oh, I still sin. How can I still sin and yet have Jesus as my Lord and still not, and be dead to sin? Because I still commit sins. He's not saying sins. He's saying here, you can think of it this way. Think of sin as a single entity. It's a, it's a power, a single power. Or it's a tyrant whose name is sin. And he says this tyrant, sin, is not your master anymore. And the result of sin, the tyrant of sin, are these sins that happen. These, that's, the under, that's the expression of the underlying root of my problem. The root of my problem is, is sin, not the sins. And so Paul, all through Romans, as we pointed out earlier, uh, keeps referring to the sin, the sin, the sin. Uh, he does that in verse 1, 2, twice in verse 6, verse 7, verse 10, verse 13, verse uh, all these verses. He refers to the sin. And I mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. What is the sin? The sin is the sin of Adam. Go back to chapter 5, which introduces chapter 6. And he talks about this sin of Adam. It's a way of looking at it as this way. It's an abnormal or defective spiritual gene that's been passed down to every person. If you want to think of it that way, give you something concrete. Uh, he, when Adam sinned, he introduced, it says, death and sin. Both death and sin came into humanity at the sin of Adam. And so this gene, we could say, of self-centeredness exists in everyone. This defective DNA makes me believe that I'm God. Oh, we don't say the word, I am God, but that's the way we live our lives. Each person struggles with this belief that he or she is God. And because I'm God and you think you're God, then all these little gods are warring against each other to see who can be on the, the highest throne, who can out-enthrone the other person. This is just the nature of the sin. The sin is the promise of, the, of Satan in, in, uh, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3 where he said, You will not die. This is Satan speaking. You will not die for God knows that when you eat of that fruit... Your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. And that was what appealed. I can be God. I can make my own decisions here. That's the promise of Satan. You can be like God. And being like God is the sin that is the root of all the different varieties of sin. We can look at it this way. And everyone's familiar with viruses right now. This is the virus that affects all people. The sin is the virus that affects all people, and it's 100% lethal. This virus is 100% lethal. So infected with the sin that it expresses itself in different ways, in different sins. It's like a physical virus. Each individual expresses the virus that they have with different symptoms. Everyone has different types of symptoms. Some have more severe symptoms than other people, but we all have the virus. 
And nothing is more blinding than to think that in serving yourself, you're not under, under the tyrancy of sin. We, we all are under sin, whether we think we're serving ourselves or some other thing. No one can tell me what to do. We hear that. Uh, you place yourself above others. You are God in your own eyes. And you find that it leads you to a life of misery. You can't be selfish and be happy. And this is the sin that is taken from us. This is where we're transformed, uh, transformed and transferred out of this mindset that I'm God into under the lordship of Christ and God. And, and, and we're saying he is Lord, not sin. And then he goes on in the verse, because you are not under law, but under grace. And here's the second word for where he says, because... You are not under law, but under grace. I spelled that wrong, I see. The second four is the word because translated here. And the reason sin is not your Lord, the reason sin is not your master is, is stated right here. He says, because for you are not under law. This is why sin is not your master, but you're under grace. Our Lord is no longer the power of selfish me. That's one way I've tried to describe the sin. It's selfish me and me as God and all the rot that comes from me being God. We are transformed or transferred from the dimension of law to the dimension of grace. This is another way of looking at from, from sin or from, uh, from the dimension of sin or the dimension of law to the dimension of grace. Uh, when we died to sin, we died to the law. We were baptized into Christ. And these are facts, whether we live like it or feel like it or not. Because God did this. He says, this is, this is the fact. You are no longer under law, but under grace. And now, here's the problem. Here's the struggle. We have to learn how to live in grace. And that's extremely difficult. Sin is the master of those under law. There are two choices he gives. You can follow law or you can follow grace. And in Christ, you're under grace, you can, but you can still live as if you're under law. This is where we struggle. The, in the Greek here, when he's not talking about, he doesn't say the law, he says a law which he means any law, which would include the law of Moses, but he's including all laws, any rule, any regulation. It's not limited to the Ten Commandments or the old law, but it expands to any laws that you might make. In Christ, you're dead to sin, but you can still live as if you're under sin's dominion. And in Christ, you're free from the law, or you're free from law, but you can still live as if you're under law. And this is... This is a key, if you're really struggling with sin, your problem may be this. You may be thinking in the wrong dimension. You're thinking in the old dimension. You're thinking in terms of what law do I need to follow? What rules do I need to follow instead of grace? We think 
that without law, a Christian will choose to sin. This is our mindset. We believe that if we don't have some rules, we will sin. We believe that if we don't keep a tight rein on people and give them a law system to follow, they will choose to do wrong. We don't believe this passage. Let me read it to you from Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And then he says, It, this is the grace of God, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Lord Jesus Christ. I think we, if we were to be truthful, if we were really to be honest, we read this passage and then we make excuses. We don't really believe the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin. We think we need the grace of God plus some rules. We don't really believe the grace of God will teach us how to live self-controlled and upright in godly lives. It's a new dimension. It's such a different dimension of how to think and live in grace that we reject it. We just say, how can that happen? Because we're so used to living in law. Every aspect of our life is regulated by law. And we're comfortable in law. We're very uncomfortable in grace. Let me give you an example from a new YouTube, and I'm going to quote this person, uh, YouTube um, teaching. Someone was, someone was uh, trying to explain Romans chapter 6, verse 14. And he spent several minutes, I don't know, 15 minutes, going from this and that and on and on. But I got down to the last part, and he said this literally. In summary, okay, this is everything I've said. In summary, for we are not under, he quotes, for we are not under law but under favor. He uses the word favor instead of grace. Simply means, listen carefully, simply means we are not under the penalty of the law because we are not breaking the law. Therefore, we are walking in righteousness. Therefore, we gain favor or grace from the Almighty. I don't know if you caught that. Listen how he explains this verse. He is saying literally this. The reason we're under grace is because we keep the law. And when we keep the law, we don't sin. And when we don't sin, God gives us grace. And, and he just explained away the clear teaching of that passage. For we are not under law, but under grace. He says, yes, we are under law. And when we keep the law, we don't sin. And when God sees us not sinning, he says, okay, I'm going to give you grace. And that's not biblical grace. And yet that's what we struggle with. We, we want to know, God, what are the rules? What do I need to do to gain your favor? And his answer is nothing. You gained my favor. You gained my grace 
when I gifted it to you. That's the gift. And, we're, and we struggle. We say, but tell me what to do. What can I do to feel good about myself? And he said, don't feel good about yourself. Feel good about what Christ has done for you. Well, how does that motivate me to live right? Well, we can, we, that's a whole another sermon. Uh, it's the rest of your life. It's a new dimensional thinking that when we really grasp the great things that God has done for us, we'll be asking, what can I do for you? We'll be seeking ways to live upright and godly lives. But we really don't believe that. We really struggle with it. Keep the rules, and then we'll get God's grace. Living in grace is so foreign to us. It's like living in a dimension we can hardly imagine. I've said it many times. The gospel of grace is such good news that we hardly believe it. Since the time of Paul, people have reasoned like this. If I follow the law, if I follow laws and rules, it helps me, it keeps me from sinning. So if I follow grace, that means I can do as I please. And Paul's reply to that is in the next verse, verse 15, which we'll look at later. He says there, may it never be. I mean, he, he, it's a really strong, some couple of strong words there. He's just saying, you're out of your mind to think that way. That's so foolish to think that way. And yet we do, we say, if we have laws, it keeps us from sinning. But if we have grace, it allows us to sin, allows us to do what we want to do. But under grace doesn't mean I can do as I please. Remember, under grace means I'm dead to myself. That's explained in verse 2. I died to sin. How can I live in it anymore? And a dead person isn't one who is seeking to please himself or seeking to sin the way he wants to because he's dead. Under grace means I'm learning and living in grace and I'm learning how to live in kindness. This is another way that you can describe grace. I'm learning how to live in kindness. I'm learning how to live in love. I'm learning how to live in mercy. And that's hard to do because it causes us to think. It causes us to search the scripture to try and find out what that means. What does it mean to live in love and live in mercy and live in kindness? Under grace means I'm not putting out the Spirit's fire as I grow in the fruit of the Spirit. So choose your master. You want to follow grace? You want to be under grace, under the authority of grace, or under the authority of law? You know, we want to be under the authority of grace but we still want to hold the hand of law. It's like we want to be married to grace, but we want to date law. And it just doesn't make sense. We really struggle with the belief that we can live righteously under grace. We still believe, we struggle with this belief that we need rules in order to live righteously. Which means we really don't understand grace. We really don't understand this, this new dimension. We haven't wrapped our minds around this different dimension that's so different than what we're used to. And what is stunning to me is that Paul is placing on the side of law sin and death. Learning to live in this dimension of grace, <clears throat> learning how to be alive to God and dead to self, 
Learning grace actions in grace living is such an awesome task that many, if not most Christians, just revert back to law living. Just let me live. Let me have the rules. They're solid. I know what they are. But you'll break them every time. It's where we're comfortable. It's what we know. It's what we think makes us godly. But Paul says it won't. You need to live in this new dimension called grace. Let's be courageous enough to live out our lives in faith, from faith from first to the last, learning how to live under grace. Let me read through the paraphrase once again as we close out. What shall I say to this? Should I live under the same roof as sin just so that there will be a superabundance of grace? Ridiculous. I forever left the dominion of sin. How can I say it's still my home? It is quite clear that when I was immersed into Christ Jesus, I was plunged into his death and bonded to every benefit of his death. Let me connect the dots for you. Through a dipping underwater, I was buried with him into death. This began a total separation from my old life. Christ was raised out from the dead by the magnificent majesty of the Father. In exactly the same way, I am also raised up like him so that I might live my new life in a uniquely new way. In view of the fact that my baptism intertwined me with him into a mirror image of his death, I will certainly experience a similar likeness of his resurrection, thus experiencing this. The old me was crucified with him. The express purpose of that crucifixion was so that the life of selfish me might be completely defective Thus, I, no, I am no longer slavishly devoted to sinful me. For having experienced this death, God's judgment pronounced me just as if I had never sinned. On top of all this, if I in fact died with Christ, I am firmly persuaded and I am confident that I will also live with him. For I have come to grasp that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will never face death again. He is outside death's jurisdiction and is no longer under its rule. The death Christ died was a one-time death, but now the life he currently lives, he lives oriented to God. So in the same way, I consider and think of selfish me as truly a lifeless corpse in regard to sinful me. But indeed, now I live oriented with eyes toward God while implanted in Christ Jesus. This is how it all comes together. I must not allow for any possibility for sinful me to be king and pay attention and comply to the urges, feelings, and passionate longings of my physical body. Neither will I keep on pampering any part of my personality, using it as a weapon or excuse toward hurtful living centered in self and sinful me. Rather, I will yield myself to God just as if I was snatched out of death to living. My whole personality as a tool of right conduct oriented toward God. Because of this, it rules out as a fact that sin will ever dominate me. For I am in no way under the rule of any kind of law. I am subject to the power of God's kindness, love, and blessing. God bless you all. Learn to live in the dimension of grace. We'll see you next week.